Uh, I appreciate your indulgence. I'm sorry that uh, it's thought we had a, a crisis in logistics. Um, and uh, us actuaries are meant to be problem solvers, and uh, between us all, we couldn't quite figure out this problem uh, and all resolve it. So anyway, we're up and running, and uh, I'm very pleased to uh, be here today. I appreciate the, the, at late notice the, the, the change in venue and you accommodating us and, and coming through to the, the convention center to attend the session. Um, ESG is a, a topic of hot debate at the moment. I'm sure that involved in the retirement fund space, um, uh, there isn't a meeting that goes past where ESG or the subject of ESG is not considered or, or, or spoken of. Um, we have with us today uh, Andrew Cantor. Uh, many of you will know Andrew. He's the Chief Investor and an Executive Director of Future Growth. Uh, asset Management Future Growth are the largest uh, managers of fixed income portfolios in South Africa. They uh, the largest developmental ma manager in South Africa. Andrew is somebody that is well um, uh, he's also somebody that is a founder of um, CFA South Africa in 2001. He's a CFA charter holder, um, well versed on the subject of ESG. Um, today, what he will do is he'll do um, the ESG issues, um, uh, considerations around governance, how governance can in fact improve um, the management of, of uh, portfolios, um, particularly fixed income portfolios in, in, in your um, as well as a number of other interesting issues like um, improving capital market standards. He'll talk about just how poor these capital market standards are um, and, and um, efforts that can be uh, pursued in those, those capital market standards. Um, once again, I'd like to apologize for the, the gross inconvenience that you guys have had to be exposed to as a consequence of, of, of the logistical issues that we've encountered today. Um, it's going to be about an hour to an hour and 20 minutes long. Um, at the end of it, um, there will be snacks and things outside for you to enjoy a bit of a treat and network with some of your colleagues. Um, the session will be recorded. Um, we do have a so uh, when, when and if you've got questions, uh, please speak or ask those questions through the microphone and Andrew will respond accordingly. Um, I encourage uh, a debate. Um, uh, I encourage questions. I'm happy to take those course of the presentation. I don't think Andrew would have a problem with that. Um, and of course, if you've parked in the convention center and you need parking um, tickets um, validated just outside uh, the lady from the Actuarial Society office, we'll, we'll assist you with that. So without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce you to Andrew, who will take you through the, the presentation. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Coach. So, um, Costa wanted to do this on December 3rd is because you all need PD points, PD hours actually. So he told me to go ahead and talk two, three hours, help you rack up the numbers so you get your uh, annual quota. Uh, okay, no, seriously. I've set my clock for four track of the time because otherwise I tend to get carried away. If you do have questions or comments, just really interrupt me. I talk fast. So feel free to just throw something or flap your arms like a chicken and you'll get my attention. Uh, Costa gave a really good intro, so I'm going to jump right in. I want to, I mean, there's a lot of confusion about ESG. How do you talk about ESG integration in a country that has seen in the public and private sector basically a wholesale degradation of governance, right? And money in malfeasance across the board. And talk about investors doing ESG integration in any serious way if that's the outcome. And we've been talking about this for a while now, right? We, some of us were signing the PRI 10 years ago, all right? This is, this is not a new story. Um, uh, so I want to I talk about that, the levers of ESG, what it means 
I want to I want to make governance real. Often, when somebody starts to talk about measuring governance or governance standards, you all yawn and your eyes roll back on your head and you fall asleep. Well, I want to make it real for you. I want to try to convince you that governance can be analyzed the way financial. I mean, maybe we're not there yet, but there's hope. So I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about what's going on in the bond market, which to me is a, is a hotbed of, of failure of governance. Um, and if I have time at the end, I want to talk about what's going on in the world of responsible investing points that are happening, which you'll be aware of, like the world is like aware now that it's warming up and carbon emissions are a problem. You know, duh. But the world is realizing now and doing something about it. And, and some things that are not tipping points, but have to be tipping points, if we have time at the end. Got at the back of this pack if you want to explore the space. Uh, prescription has been a hot button this year. And if somebody wants to discuss that, I've got those slides. I can give you a, the three-minute version or the 30-minute version. Your call. How many PD points do you want? Um, and anyway, we can you want uh, uh, across the spectrum. So let's just jump into it. First of all, uh, let's, uh, and I do appreciate that some of you have seen these slides before. It's been a rolling story as we had our fight with the SOEs in 2016 and realized that governance had, be, had degraded. We've learned an awful Slides kind of evolve and the story kind of evolves to bring up to the present day. But anyway, so this, this slide has evolved from when I first used it sort of three years ago when we were talking about the debt to GDP ratio capping out at 50, then 60, and 70, running towards an 80% debt to GDP ratio if we stay on the path we're on. This is the, this is the real cost of poor governance in this country. It's, it's, it's not just the money that was stolen, which could be 2 to 3% of that number, that, that debt to GDP number, just pause. Two three percent of GDP was stolen. Ding, you know, I mean, that's big. That's governance failure. And, that, and not, not just that, it's the lower growth, it's the lack of confidence, it's the, it's the therefore, the, the high unemployment, the growing inequality, uh, and, of course, cut back spending in a recession when there's unemployment, you have to spend more, so you get this 6% annual deficit now rising towards uh, an enormous uh, overall debt ratio, and that, of course, leads to downgrades and downgrades and downgrades, and we're all waiting for Moody's to drop the bomb and lower investment grade, but in the meantime, S&P's gotten ahead of them and put us on credit watch downgrade. So we are clearly going in, in one direction at the moment with little hope unless something changes quickly. And the consequence of that is instead of having a cost of capital uh, kind of over here in the single A space, you move down the credit spectrum, your cost of capital goes proportionally higher, which again exacerbates low growth, low investment opportunities, and blah, 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 all those things. There was a real cost to poor governance, to the breaking of trust in, in by South Africa and investee invest companies uh, has an actual cost to us all and the economy. Okay, So I want to talk about these levers of ES, ESG. And when we talk about integration of ESG, what we mean to say, or what we should be saying as asset managers, is we talk about all the elements of, of risk, and we integrate environmental, social, and governance factors into our analytical process and, in future goes view, in my view, into our risk assessment, into our pricing for risk, into the that we that we have. So so these this wheel, if you will, when we do a loan, and we're principally a credit house, although we do some private equity. I'll, I'll talk about that. We try to think about all these elements. I mean, traditional investment analysis obviously focused on the financial and things. What's their market and competitive position, the strategic positioning, who are management? I mean, we've all, investors have always looked at that. But one now what we're thinking about is a lot more things like uh, what is, what's the complexity of business and the ability of management to manage it. What are the legal and contractual agreements? Certainly on bond. Or, or debt agreements, you do that. And then you get into environmental and governance and social factors. Um, and then there's more. Even just the other day, um, you'll, you'll see later on, I make an allusion to the, uh, the humane treatment of farmed animals. Somebody sent me an email and said, you know, Andrew, on that 
include um, uh, the humane treatment of farmed animals. I mean, geez, something else to add to it. It's an evolving story. And what's the point of that? The point of that is, is when, you're looking at a, when you're looking at a company, you have to look at it like a spouse, right? You meet and sure, you look at their financial statements. Let's just take that as read. But you also look at them as a holistic entity, their, their background and their future and how they think and what their cultural biases are and what their ethical bases are and all those things. And you think about their place in the world before you marry them. Well, the investment, you should think about all the elements that make up a borrower or an investee if you're a shareholder. So I want, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about pricing for risk. Okay, I'm going to get there in a second. So, so the first point uh, following that is... ESG integration, or I don't know, the, the, uh, you know, the social impact of the work we do and job creation and humane treatment of farmed animals, it all feels good, and reducing carbon emissions is great, but we are in the return-seeking business. Nobody should be going to pension fund trustees to compromise returns in favor of either social or economic or developmental investments or ESG factors. You, it is integrated. It is risk and return being, being consolidated, so the more risk you take, which you have to measure in a variety of more complex ways, turns into higher return. Because A, it's a great marketing slide, and B, it proves the point is you could do infrastructure and development finance for over 20 years and beat the all bond index and be, actually beat most of the bond managers in the country uh, by nearly 2% for 20 years. Great. You be able, nobody should be talking about compromising returns. We take more risk doing low income housing finance, we should get a higher return for doing it. That's fine. So let's, let's talk about this. This is, this is um, if you're running a credit portfolio, there's two primary to add yield. And the first is you take more credit risk. That is, take these are prob represent probabilities of default. Each of, these, each of these credit ratings, as you move down the credit rating spectrum, and you guys would know this, increases the probability of default from sort of a 0.021% to 4.2% per annum probability of default. I'm, I'm making up those numbers, but it's the right order of magnitude. So, so if you want to add yield, sure, move down the credit spectrum. As you go down the credit spectrum, your required yield for probability of default goes up. The second in a, in, a, in a credit portfolio would be to lend money for longer periods of time. Um, simplistically, if I lent money, uh, or if we lent money to Bidvest, let's say, uh, for 91 days, they would pay us a Jibar plus 40 basis points, let's say. If we lend to Bidvest, a floating rate load of Jibar plus, say, 240 basis points. You see, so what you're doing is you're going out in time, the yield also goes up. So your, your highest yield happens to be your highest risk, which is long-term loans to single B-rated entities. And so you're earning basis points. Of course, that's stupid. You would never, you would never lend 20-year money to a double B entity because it would be bust before then. So, so you kind of, you truncate this line somewhere across there where you just won't do it. But the, the principle stands. The whole point is, we're going to try to integrate that entire wheel of factors into a single score. I know your actuaries, you're going to hate this stuff. You're trying to take all of the, uh, this is fancy mathematics, this is pricing of risk. These are probabilities of default, and behind that a recovery rate, an expected recovery when you make a loan. You're going to hate it when I tell you that if you you're going to try and turn all that stuff into a single score, a credit rating, a probability of default. Now, that sounds stupid. It is kind of stupid. But it's very difficult to put all that stuff into statistics. First of all, we don't have statistics. It's not like there's random trials on the psychometrics of management. Right? You've got to follow your nose. You have to be human on these things and judge people's character by their behaviors, the same as you do it in my spouse example. So, so what we do is we try to take all that stuff in and and it's a checklist. All that stuff is on a checklist, and an assessment by the analyst is expect, he's expected or she is expected to take on that checklist, and we turn it into a change to the probability default. And what, and what is probability default? It's, it's your cone of uncertainty. If, if, you're looking, if you're looking from time 
uh, and if you have absolutely certain, absolute certainty of cash flows and the line goes straight up like that uh, for 15 or 20 years, well, you've got certainty of cash flows. There's no, almost no probability of default. Um, then you're way up on that side. But as your cone of uncertainty, that creates more opportunities, bang, for the default. Your PD goes up, you move down here, and you price for risk. The point is, all those cultural factors, all those other factors I showed you up front, feed into probability of default. They feed into volatility. Do they really? Well, yes, they do. A bad auditor feeds into a higher probability of default. We know this now. You've seen it. I mean, there's, there's anecdotal evidence, if not scientific evidence. So let's give some real examples. Here's an interesting company know and probably love, shame on you, half of you are subscribers, roughly. Uh, look at this string of headlines that we know about MTN over the last uh, uh, 10 plus years, right? Every one of those is a horrible, horrible headline. Allegations of fraud, corruption, malfeasance spread around a Africa and the Middle East, uh, including, by the way, if we go way back, that they are alleged to have uh, paid a bribe to win the big Iranian license. Uh, you may also remember, if you have a memory for this, they also... Um, at one point were alleged to have handed over all sorts of personal private data to uh, the repressive regime in Iran so they could uh, repress people, basically. Um, and, and by the way, uh, just to, to add insult to injury, uh, they recently realized, this uh, that's May 2019, they formed, they said, look, we seem to have an ethical problem. Sorry, I'm, I'm using those words. They didn't actually say that. But in effect, they said, they said, we seem to have an ethical problem. We're going to form this new advisory board. And they some fairly big names on that advisory board, which African body who's going to oversee them and guide them on ethical challenges. Okay, within within a couple of months, July 2019, MTN uh, shuts down the cell phone network in Sudan while the government people. Okay, now I'm sorry I can't connect those two May and July statements. It doesn't make sense to me. So I have a view of the of the culture of this business, and that view is anecdotal. However, I would argue that sort of two dozen headlines. And it doesn't make it so anecdotal. And, and what does that mean? How do you turn that into risk? So in, in, in my lexicon, come back here, it, uh, in future goes through, and this has been true for a long time because we've monitored this company, even though they've got a, battle, a, a balance sheet and an income statement, I mean, definitely in the AA, AA plus space because of cash flows and relative, relative gearing, the fact is we've assessed all along that there is governance risks and operational risks and cultural risks in this business, and not just because they're doing business in dodgy companies, countries are in fact a dodgy company. The way they behave leads to risk. The Nigerian fines, what you think Nigeria just decided to find them for no reason, they made themselves vulnerable, is my assessment, my judgment, my anecdotal view. They made themselves vulnerable by behaving badly and then became But this is what you pay, get paid to do. I showed you that wheel of things we have to assess for. So what do we do? Officially, they've been up in this range. Future growth has always said they're down in this range. We didn't embargo them. We didn't say we will not do business with the company, but not with this company. Uh, but by pricing for risk, what does it mean? The market says the yield should be here. Future growth says the yield should be here. Well, the market's bigger than the future growth. We get outbid for the bonds every time. Whenever they've done a bond issue in the past decade, we get demanding, say, 200 points, and the market says we'll do it at 120. They get the bonds. We don't get any. Okay. It's a waste of effort, of course, because we know we're going to get outbid. But you have to follow the company. It's a big issue. That's turning that subjective wheel factors into pricing for risk and an investment decision and an exposure. Notice what I said though, zero exposure to MTN. If you're an equity investor, and this is one of the real problems with ESG integration, if you're an equity investor, generally are benchmark slavish. 
you are benchmarked to large cap equity indices. And who's in the large cap equity indices? Well, they are, right? Go, go, go to zero weight in MTN and see what your clients say, right? this share outperforms. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a serious problem. This slavishness to indices itself is, a, is an obstructive factor to the integration of ESG factors because even if you have a strong, well-reasoned view, albeit it's always an opinion, if you sit in a strong way and you are wrong, you are dead. I'll give you another example of that in a minute. Uh, in the meantime, this, you, think, you think there's no connection between the cultural forces and the share price? Well, there it is. And, and that's before, before the Turk cell thing blows up in their hands. Sue them all over the world, and finally, is, they did a dawn raid at MTN's office, I think, uh, about a year ago, didn't they? Uh, so this case, is, this case is brewing, and if it, if it hits, if Turkcell proves that they paid a bribe to win that Tur Turkish, uh, that it's going to be really, really, really big. I mean, I don't, I don't know, cut the market cap in half. That's sort, of, that's sort of big. So kind of low probability, kind of big impact. You price for it. Okay. Here's an interesting story. Uh, this is an Listed equity investment, Abigold, and, and this, this, this shows you all the things we can get wrong, even thinking about all those factors, all the things you get wrong. Um, and I don't know if any of you know Harmonis, I'm, I'm sure you probably do. This is, all, this is Walker Bay, uh, this is over Sunby, Harmonis, if you will. And what they do is they pump seawater up out of uh, about here, they pump seawater up with big pumps into these tanks where they grow abalone for export. Abalone, as you may or may not know, is a shellfish that grows for about four or five years before it gets to a nice size that the Chinese and they harvest it, can it, and ship it to China where they sell it at a premium price. Okay, simple business. It's, agri it's, got, it's, it's agriculture without, without the risk of, of rain or, or dry. I don't even want to know. Okay, so, so simple enough. We price it, we buy the equity. It's been going on for a long, the business, nice long, long live business, doing very well. We buy the equity with an expected cash flow IRR of 23% return on investment, um, and all things are well and good, except we missed a few things. Well, first, we missed global warming. Global warming? How does that affect you? Well, warmer seawater temperatures, it turns out, cause bigger red tide blooms. Red tide is, a, is algae, it's al algae blooms. Algae kills shellfish, in case you didn't know that. It makes it toxic to eat, can't eat it. So what do they do? We get a red tide bloom out here because of global warming. They pump red tide into their own tanks and kill about a third of their inventory. Keep in mind, inventory is growing for five years before you can sell it. Kaboom, right? You've just wiped out a whole bunch of accretive uh, value on your balance sheet because you, you create assets. And we missed it. We didn't think about global warming and the risk on this business. Second thing we missed was actually regulatory or political risk. China, you may recall, had a big clampdown on uh, corruption a couple years ago. Uh, the, um, uh, Chairman Li said, on corruption, well, of course, in China, you, what you give as expensive gifts is abalone. Okay? And most recently, and again, the, all the stuff in Hong Kong, I don't know, I, I, when men oh no, our sales are down because of the unrest in Hong Kong. I'm like, what are you, crazy? What is it, what's one got to do with the other? Well, it turns out that all the luxury goods in Hong Kong, the sales are collapsing, including abalone. So we missed, we missed several things here. By the way, there's one other thing I, I, I wasn't going to mention, but I will tell you, plant. this is the poor part of Hermanus, the Sunbai, and the, this is sort of the township of Hermanus. Um, it doesn't have proper plumbing, and the sewage works don't work, so actually the effluent is flowing directly into the ocean right near our inlet. We missed environmental risk and social risk. Everything went wrong. Everything's going wrong. It's a great sustainable business anyway. We should have, bottom line, had we known all that, had we thought about it, we would, would we bought the share? Sure. Would we have done it at a 23% discount rate? No, we would have done it at 30% discount rate. Price for risk. Subjective, total, but those are real factors and we could have anticipated them if we'd asked the right questions. That's my point. Just as an aside, if you ever want to set up a company and you want to get a really good board of directors, 
do it in Hermanus. Because all the captains of industry that retire from Johannesburg go to Hermanus. You are, if this company has a board of directors, it should be running like Eskom. Okay? That's, I mean, really good quality directors uh, are, are, are hanging around on the South Coast. Keep reference. Steinhoff and I have spent a lot of time on you all lost money on it. We did not. We had zero exposure. We embargoed investing in Steinhoff in 2008. Embargoed. Stopped analyzing. Literally said, we're no longer looking at any company related to Steinhoff, we will not lend money to. Okay, now that's pretty bold. Remember, lend money. I'm a lender principally. Why? All the stuff that came out later was visible as early as 2008. Um, uh, the, the stuff about uh, impropriety, aggressive accounting, uh, self-dealing by the chief executive, Marcus Justin uh, Bruno Steinhoff, buying, buying buildings for 100 and selling them into the company at 250 the next week. Um, uh, on the front page of the Sunday Times, there was a big... 600 million rand tax fraud related to Steinhoff. It was all out there, people. You just chose to ignore it. The asset management industry largely chose to ignore it. This uh, other, other um, uh, heuristics were blowing up. Um, complex, hard to understand, right? That's a, that, that's a heuristic that generally says stay away. It, I mean, it's just a rule of thumb you, you follow. Um, highly acquisitive company, even equity analysts will tell you this, a company that's highly acquisitive can't be analyzed because you can't compare year on year on year because they, they just keep buy, buying bigger and bigger stuff, which is exactly what... Steinhoff did. Um, the inability to analyze the financial statements, they were literally, anybody that tells you they could analyze those financials is lying to you. It was not possible to do. Okay? Um, I, had a, I had a private run-in with Marcus Houston that told me what his character was. It was a, it was a private thing. And, but it turns out that he, uh, he is the kind of corporate bully that if you put out a sell recommendation on his share, you would not be invited back to um, results presentations or conference calls. You would literally be excluded. This goes on today. This other corporate, these other chief executives do this. There was no way to catch them. So this corporate bullying and beating up independent analysts, it's another problem. It's another problem, broadly speaking. Uh, I've highlighted the benchmarks. Pause on that. Slavishness to benchmarks. Go ahead. I, saw, I said zero exposure to Steinhoff in 2008. Imagine if I was an equity manager. I would have been fired in 2010 or 2011, right? The share price, was, I would have gone to trustees. They said, Andrew, what are you doing? You're such a great company. You've got zero exposure. I would have told my story, and they would have fired me because I would have underperformed. Benchmarks are a problem. Analytical independence is a problem in South Africa, well, globally, actually. Uh, if you're an independent analyst, you put an independent view. If you say it publicly, Anthony Geard, who, who made his comments about Tongat and was ditched by uh, Investec a day later, or stabbed in the back by Investec, my, um, and, and corporate bullies who, who literally will, will pillory you themselves uh, if they don't go talk to your shareholders. They'll throw you out of meetings if you don't say what, they, what you're supposed to say for them. It's a real problem, analytical independence. Okay. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but what I will tell you is that if the, the answer is no. Bread price fixing, anybody remember that? What does that tell you about their culture? They were fixing prices of bread in this country. Oh, but we paid the fine, so it's okay. No, it's not okay. Your culture is sick. And where does that culture lead you uh, a decade later? To, to, in essence, killing 300 South Africans, most, most of which were infants, and the other, the other half were elderly, right? So I'm sorry, but this, this company has a serious cultural, uh, cultural and ethical disconnect with reality. Borrow money from me, they are embargoed at future growth. I'm kind of looking forward to them coming and asking. But seriously, seriously, think about this. So what happens? So a bunch of equity analysts probably individually know what I know and what you know. And they probably individually go and they speak to, to um, uh, what's his name? Um, the CEO, what's his name? Uh, well, anyway. 
go and have a cup of tea with him and chat, chat with him. You know, what are you going to do about this listeriosis thing? And he'll say, yeah, mm, yeah, because mm. the analysts all talk to him individually and nobody does anything collectively. And there's no rules or methodology in South Africa for people to work collectively. Because if you try to do anything collectively, and some of you may have had experience with this, the bad guys, that guy, will, will actually go to some regulator, the Competition Commission or the Securities Regulation Panel or whatever, and they will shut you down if you try to talk to other asset managers. That's what happens. They weaponize these, these legal strictures against you even when you're doing the right thing. Legal opinion from ENS that says on ESG matters, investors can work together. It exists and everybody knows it exists, but nobody's using it. Just telling you that, a CISA pay for that. Okay, so a summary of that. Hopefully I'm giving you an idea of integrating risk and risk. I'm telling you in a way you hate because you are actuaries, you want it to be quantitative uh, rather than qualitative, but I can't do that for you. But what I will tell you is it's an integrated process. You don't have the ESG people over there and the financial people over there. Each analyst who covers each company has to think about all of these factors. Not on geniuses, you have to work as a team and ask questions of the credit committee and the investment committee so you get the best thinking. But it's an integrated process and it's every investment, not just some investment, like the good investments and the rest. Every investment in the house goes through this process. Uh, second, uh, trying to adjust your, your long-term cash flow forecast to the vol to volatility of cash flows, the cone of uncertainty, likelihood of default, and price for that risk. It is judgment-based. I've made a lot of uh, already very judgmental comments here today. Those are in. You don't expect your, unless you're buying a passive manager, you expect your active manager to take in all these factors and exercise judgment and discretion. That's what we get paid to do. That's what Future Growth does do. And as I said before, we can and we do embargo companies, uh, and we think it's our responsibility to do so as responsible investors. And we wish other people would do it as well because some people shouldn't be getting capital. Okay. It integrates across the whole house. Likewise, with our developmental funds, our dedicated developmental suite, stuff doing development, but a lot of those deals are good, juicy deals. They've got good security, um, uh, good yields. And by the way, none of these other clients ever said, don't do developmental investing, right? So if you've got some really good feed the funds that have a limited mandate, but once you've filled up their capacity, you can start spreading developmental deals all over the place. So for example, our flagship infrastructure bond fund today is probably about call it 65, 70% in, in infrastructure and developmental assets. Bond fund, which has no development, developmental mandate, is probably also about 50% uh, in developmental assets because those are the deals we see and we like. Um, so, so it's an integrated process. ESG is integrated, developmental investing is integrated. This was a slide I was showing to our clients in the infrastructure bond fund circa 2015, and I was proudly telling you as, as trustees, as clients, look what your money is doing for South Africa. You're helping brand new locomotives for Transnet, aren't you proud? We'll come back to that. You know where that train's going. Uh, future Growth, future growth has, also, has always believed uh, that uh, uh, sometimes uh, you should be a good citizen. Sometimes saying things publicly gets more, uh, gets more done. Maybe it's because I have an American accent, I can get away with some stuff, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, we, we have been public in our views from various times, and most people forget the earlier ones, they only remember the big one. But uh, we started pulling money for the and we did it publicly. We said the micro-lending industry is out of control in this country. They're, they become a social evil. They're no longer social good. And we will no longer provide capital to them from our developmental funds. In fact, we were reducing exposure across the whole house, in particular to African Bank, by the way. Thank goodness African Bank lasted more than a year, year and a half more before the going bust. So we didn't get blamed for that. They crashed that plane by themselves. But there's been lots of other cases. I mean, we've sued the Minister of Transport and Access. By the way, we've won the case. They just don't want to pay us. 
Uh, we, we won a case against the Minister of Transport for oppression of minorities who are a shareholder in Axa, believe it or not. You didn't know there were private shareholders in the airports company, did you? Uh, your pension fund, isn't it? Because uh, I've got it. Uh, but we, we, we've gone after ratings agents for their misbehaviors over time. We've talked about uh, avoiding dirty coal. We, we, we embargoed um, lending to those two new coal-fired power plants, not Madupe and Kassili. There were two other power plants in the, in the integrated resource plan. And we said, no, it's dirty coal. We won't fund it. We don't think it's the right thing to do. Uh, we said that publicly, et cetera, et cetera. We said a lot of stuff publicly over the last 15, 20 years. This is just a smattering. So we were kind of surprised when we, when we said this at the end of August 16 that it blew up the way it did. Um, and, and what I want to tell you is what we learned from this rather than tell the whole story of this. But suffice to say, we said we'll no longer lend these six SOEs um, uh, until we could do a governance review of them because we all knew something was 2016, we just didn't know what, but something smelled. There was, enough, there was enough news flow and anecdotal information to tell us that something was up. So we just said, no more lending until we can do a governance review. Anyway, that's a longer story. The, the important point to take away from this slide is, you should be thinking to yourself, Andrew, you idiot, why on earth would you name the names? Why not just make a general statement? We're not going to lend to any SOE until we can do a governance review. We name the names because each of these issuers are in the, in the bond market. They're securities, listed debt instruments, which means they stand up to that scrutiny, they stand up to that potential criticism. Remember, in the listed markets, you can actually say whatever you want. You can, you can actually lie. You can, you can do a viceroy, you can go, like viceroy did, right? Go out and say, ooh, Capitec's in trouble, and it's going down the tubes, and you've already shorted the shares, so you hope it goes down so you can buy them back. You're allowed to do that. There's no, um, the, the, there's no filter except the market itself. So as it happens, we didn't actually say anything insulting about this. People always said was, they are listed bonds, we can say whatever we want, and what we're saying anymore. So, kaboom, this thing blows up, makes a lot of noise, uh, gets, me, gets the government angry at me, gets my shareholder angry at me. Um, I, I spent 50, 54 minutes on air with Jimmy Manya yelling at me, uh, calling me a racist and a terrorist and a capitalist and white um, on air. Uh, and anyway, but be that as it may, within a week, each of those SOEs had a full list of the ESG, excuse me, the governance questions we wanted to ask them. If they wanted them, for example, Transit and Eskom were not interested in talking. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> so Transit and Eskom didn't call us. Land Bank, IDC, DBSA, and Sunroll called us and said, what do you want to know? Okay? And within a week, they all had that list. And in a month, we were able to clear Land Bank. By the end of September, a month later, we were able to say, Land Bank's okay. Everybody thought, oh, well, Futurecoast rolled over, Old Mutual yelled at them, and so they just caved in. Not true. Not true. Land Bank, nobody knew, had really good had good governance. Land Bank, some of you with longer memories will remember, it was in the, um, uh, under the Minister of Agriculture up to 2006, and it was a mess. I mean, when they got in, when National Treasury took it over in 2006, they got in the bonds missing and loans to cronies, and it was craziness what was going on at Land Bank. National Treasury took it over in 2006 and actually fixed it. They put in a board, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm generally right, but specifically wrong. It's either 13 or 14 people on that board. Every single independent director. There's no politician on, those, on that board. It's remarkable, actually. They've got a proper audit committee, proper credit committees, et cetera, et cetera. It was, they've got really good governance. They were excited to talk to us. And not only that, and I'm going to leap a couple slides ahead in my, in my talk, what, they engaged with us in such a positive way, and we were able to get the answer we want, subject to some changes, which I'll tell you about, um, that when we issued our report, shortly thereafter, they were able to borrow more money from the market than they could previously for longer terms 
they'd been funding like one-year and two-year money, they could fund now four- and five-year money and at lower interest rates than they were doing previously. And our report became like a governance rating assessment that the market used. So it was a very positive experience for Lambank, actually, and for DBSA and for IDC. But what out as we got in here. What we found out was nobody had asked a bunch of governance questions. This is the part where I want to move into this idea of governance made real, that you can analyze governance. So, so first let me put up a whole list of things they agreed to report on. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, it's about all these policies and charters and documents. Do I really want to see the code of ethics because it's usually bull anyway? Do I want to see the PEPS policy? Well, actually you do. Actually you do. What's a PEPS policy? A PEPS policy is uh, a policy that is you're going to deal with a politically exposed have an additional level of controls and mechanisms of, of oversight before you approve loans or deals with politically exposed persons. Um, so, for example, what we found out was the IDC, who actually is part of their mission, is a generation of black industrialists, many of whom are politically connected, let's be frank with each other. Nothing wrong with that, but they didn't have a PEPS policy. So they run those deals through their normal, their normal channels, which are obviously have, have politically connected people inside those channels. You have to have a PEPS policy to the IDC, why don't you have a PEPS policy? And they said, oh my gosh, you know, you're right. They did it within a month, the board approved it. It was that simple. It wasn't like even a fight. It was like they just, nobody had asked. Treasury, National Treasury hadn't asked, none of the bondholders hadn't asked, the ratings agents hadn't asked, nobody came along and just asked a sensible question. They did the right thing. Here's, that's, so that's one example of governance made real. Another, uh, another example was um, both Land Bank and DBSA, okay, step back for a second. Look at these three entities. What are they? They're all lending agencies. They make loans. Land loans, infrastructure loans, industrial developmental loans. They're lending agencies. So if you're going to capture one of these, who do you have to capture? You need to capture the credit committee. I don't care about their procurement. I don't need to look at their procurement committee. Let's be rational about this. You know, sure, we'll look at their procurement policy, but who cares? The big money is in credit. It's in lending. If you want to capture these entities, you capture the credit committees. And if you want to capture ESKIM, you capture the procurement committee which they did. That's exactly what happened. So, so, so we looked quite a lot at the credit, credit committee structures. How much could management approve before it had to go to the board credit committee, and how much could the board credit committee approve before it goes to the full board? So what we found out, DBSA, but it could have equally been Land Bank. We, we lowered them both. DBSA's limits of authority for the management credit committee, that's just the chief executive, chief financial officer, and a couple other of their gang, could approve loans of up to a billion rand each. Hi. Because if you're going to, at that point in history, of course, if you're going to capture DBSA, all you have to do is put in a corrupt chief, chief executive, because who, who in the team is going to go against the CEO, right? Nobody. We learned that from Brian Malefe. So, so we said to them, you need to lower your limits on the credit committee. And they did. They lowered it down to 250 million. It wasn't a fight. They said, good, okay, sensible. They did it. Not only that, we got them to agree as part of the reporting. It's not on there, but we got them to agree to report on the numbers of loans approved by the management credit committee and the amount. So, come the end of the year or the integrated annual report, if they're reporting, well, we did um, 37 deals of 245 million rand, well, doo -doo -doo -doo, alarm bells go off. You're getting instruments of discovery. You're, you're getting oversight without knowing specifically who they behaviors through information, through data. So being able to see all this stuff is important. Whistleblowing policies, the, the board credit and investment committee charter tells you the limits of authority. It tells you how many people have to be in the room. It tells you that's the quorum requirements, the their limits of authority. These are important documents, and importantly, changes those documents. So, for example, it may not be true, but I was told that the Eskom Group Internal Audit Function was reporting to Anur Singh by the time they were through. Now, Anur Singh was the CFO. 
anything about corporate governance. Group internal audit does not report to the CFO. Group internal audit is there to watch the CFO. But they had so corrupted that entity and nobody knew from the outside that's what was going on. So you need to see the changes of these things and by getting them exposed and getting to report all the stuff on a rolling basis, either through a SENS or in the integrated report, suddenly it gives us instruments of discovery so we can monitor the changes. You can, you, as I say, you can make governance real and you can keep an eye on it. Um, let, me, let me give you one more example. Um, and let's, let's, pretend, let's pretend it's Eskom, okay? Because I'm making this up, just for clarity. Absolutely making this up. So let's say, let's say um, what does Eskom do? They build stuff. They procure stuff. So let's say the Eskom procurement committee can pro do procurement up to 20 billion rand. It's probably about the right number. That's, I don't actually know, but let's assume it's right. 20 billion rand is what the board procurement committee can approve. So let's say that the board procurement committee is five people. And let's assume that the quorum requirement is 50%. That means you need to have three people in the room. And let's say the voting threshold to approve anything is 50%. That means two people have to approve a 20 billion rand transaction. And of course, you get into the discussion of who are those two people. And notice periods. Well, what if, what if you could have a meeting whenever you want on two hours notice? Which it turns out, this I think is true, Eskom was doing that. They were having meetings of procurement at 11 o'clock at night. So even the, the three good guys didn't, couldn't even show up at the meeting, right? You know, there's only the two bad guys left. You can analyze that from the outside. You can look at who's on those committees, and you can, you can do the counts of limits of authority, quorum requirements, voting thresholds, and notice periods to see if there's proper governance. It's easy to see. It's simple, simple uh, analytical. Nobody wants to do it, all right? That's the issue. Um, I think I've talked about this. Oh, here's another interesting one, cooling off periods. Simple, simple stuff. This is Sunroll. Uh, what does Sunroll do? They procure roads, road building, road repair. Um, if anybody, you will know you have what's called a cooling off period. If you leave an agency of government, you cannot come back and do work for government for a period of time, often six months, sometimes a year in some governments. Sunroll had no cooling off period. You could be working at Sunroll on a Monday, knowing that there's a week. You could come back and uh, retire, resign on Tuesday, tender for work on Wednesday, and win that tender on Thursday. Could do it. They didn't have a cooling off period at all. And we told them, and they put it in. Again, it wasn't a fight. Nobody asked. Nobody asked these questions. Unfortunately, with the weak state of governance analytic analysis in the world, in the country. Eskom, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, because again, you know where this train is going. Um, uh, we won't waste time on their code of ethics, because it's fiction. Um, nor will we talk about their application of King Code. Um, this, this is entertaining. This, this proves my point that uh, governance uh, tick box approach to governance, do they have this, do they have that, does not work because this is government's, Eskom's own assessment using, using the Institute of Directors tool, which I think you can find online, uh, for their own assessment of their own governance, ethical and leadership of corporate citizenship, AAA, board and directors, AAA, na, 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 na. I've already told you about the audit. Na, 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 na. Ooh, internal audit, good. You know, okay, guys. That's what you get when you do tick box governance assessment. You need to do analysis. Analysts, we talk about ESG integration. The G is not just a tick box exercise. Okay? Put in for fun. Brian Malefe did call me, in print, an idiotic imbecile from the lunatic fringe. So he did say that. I didn't take him down. He almost got me. Uh, I, saw, I, met, I met Tuli Maronsela last week for the first time. I don't know if any of you went to that um, governance um, ethics scorecard from Gibbs function. Anyway, Tuli was speaking there, and I gave her a hug, and I said, thank you, because her report came out. I shot my mouth off at the end of August. Her report came out in October that basically tell Brian. I remember Brian was trying to get me fired that entire two months. 
okay? And he has a big voice. <laughs> I thanked her for saving me in my career. Um, I've already talked to this. This is, uh, the, the market did follow us. We didn't ask them to, by the way. We did not ask anybody to follow us. We didn't speak to anybody offline. We didn't talk to the CISA committees. No emails were sent. Kanye, of all people, brought us to the Competition Commission after we made our public comment uh, on some grounds of anti-competitive behavior, but there wasn't any, and it was dismissed. Uh, thankfully, that uh, Competition Commission was weaponized by Jimmy, but it was not effectively weaponized. It hadn't been captured yet. Okay, and this, I, I don't have talked, I won't talk to this. This is all the auctions of all the bonds of those entities we assessed, and it just shows they borrowed more money for longer terms and lower rates after our reports. The who matters in governance, this is Lynn Brown. Now, now here's, here's, another, here's another interesting thing about governance made real. Uh, some of you may be on the boards of companies, and you'll know that a good board has what's called a nominations committee. That is a group of senior exec, uh, directors if you will, who sit down and they look at the board. They say, well, you know, we need more engineering skills, we need more financial skills, or this, this, this person is lazy, they need to go, um, or this is the kind of person we want to bring in. They, they nominate people that goes to shareholders for approval. They consider the structure of the board, how many people they need. That's a nominations committee. Most big companies have them, most good companies have them. DBSA, Land Bank, and IDC, for example, all have board nomination committees. Eskom and Transnet, by contrast, all of those board appointments were, and I believe still, made by the Minister of Public Enterprises in their office alone. So you could be a good chairman of Eskom, if you could find one of those. You could be a good chairman of Eskom, but Lynn Brown, in her wisdom, sitting in her office, could send you a bunch of directors you never, don't even know where that's, that's actually what was happening. Not that there was necessarily a good chairman of Eskom, but she was sitting in her office alone, sending directors to Eskom, and you wonder why it went to awry. And of course, we all know now, it was public, that Lynn Brown's PA was a, a Gupta appointee. Lynn's, Lynn's answer, this is, by the way, a full year later. This is, this is at the end of 2017, after all the Gupta leaks. And she's saying, well, you know, I can kind of look at who they are, and I can see their qualifications, but I don't know how, who their friends are. And, you know, I'm assess them, really. Really? You know, call a journalist. They'll tell you in five minutes. How about Googling them for a start? That's what we do. You know? I mean, if you, a good, oh, here's a credit heuristic. Somebody comes in, they want to borrow money. You Google their name and the word fraud. Their name and the word... <laughs> their name and the word suspect. I mean, you know, it takes you a very short period of time to figure out who's who in the zoo. Cop-out, absolute cop-out, happy that she's gone. Okay, and this story now, of course, you, as I told you before, you know it's gone, but this is a real deal. We had about one and a half billion rand of client money, by the way, you're in this deal, um, and, and you now know that 20% of the deal was, was stolen, right? It was sent off to Dubai. It, it was a, it, it corrupt payments of overpaying for the locomotives. So, so uh, while originally, been fully 100% supportive of our public comments, which were pretty benign in themselves. Later on, they, they got a lot more supportive. That's only 40 minutes. Don't get excited yet. Not done. Okay. If I see anybody yawn, I'm stopping. That's the deal. No yawning. Okay. So what do, what, do, what do we find out? We find out that the King Code is good in principle, but bad in practice. That actually, this concept of a board of directors being all-seeing, all-powerful, all-roads everything. What a bunch of malarkey. I have a of boards of companies. You don't really know what's going on in the business. Let's be frank. You don't know what's in, going on in the trenches. So, so we, need to, we need to get beyond the King Code presumption of this, this unified power center. We need to get to the idea that there's a web governance includes, sure, if you're an SOE, there's a whole bunch of stuff above you. The PFMA, for example. Now, unfortunately, the PFMA nobody's been enforcing, but it's a great piece of legislation. There's, there's ministry oversight and national treasury oversees everything, by the way. There's a shareholders compact. 
sector, there's really just a bunch of listed, listed shareholders who operate through the board. It's true. It's relatively weak. But there's still a whole bunch of insiders who always know what's going on, right? Anybody going to tell me that the people inside Steinhoff didn't know what's going on? The people inside what's going on? The people inside Aspen don't know what's going on? Really? I, I think not. These people know what's going on. They keep their mouths shut. They're afraid. Um, so, so let me pause on that thought before I get to the outsiders. That's us. Um, South Africa has maybe three pieces of legislation to protect whistleblowers. So theoretically, if you blow the whistle, there is protection for you. But you and I know, and we all know from practical experience, if somebody blows the whistle in the public or private sector, you'll be moved to an office down in the basement. Coffee machine will be cut off. Nobody will talk to you. You'll be pilloried. Eventually, you will be fired or chased out of the business, and your kids will not go to school anymore. You will not work again, even if you're a good person. Even if you've done the right thing in the right way, nobody will hire you for some reason, which is kind of weird. South Africa works. Um, and so the answer to that is, and, and I, I put this forward and I put this to Tulia Modincella as well, as she wrote an article on this um, uh, about the same time I started touting it, is we need to start paying bounties. The word bounty is like picture the old wanted poster, wanted, dead or alive, bounty of $10,000, except make it $10 million. Um, we need to pay bounties to insiders. And that sounds crazy. Like, how are you going to do that? And how does that work in practice? Blah, blah, blah. What the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission does do, as I stand here to say, they've been doing it for a decade. There's a bounty system. If you're an insider company in the U.S., and it is the SEC, so we're talking about listed companies. They're not going after government officials. Let's be clear about that. And I don't imagine we'll Parliament. <laughs> imagine bounties on, on outing politicians. Anybody going to vote for that? You know, not if you're in Parliament, you won't. But in, in, in listed entities, we could. We could. So, so the SEC, if you're an insider uh, and you blow the and it turns into a case. Remember, the SEC levies fines. If they can levy a fine or win a case, you get paid. You get a portion of the takings. And it's in the millions of dollars. The whole industry has cropped up. You can hide behind a law firm. There are legal practices that have popped up where literally you can hide behind blow the whistle. He on blows the whistle. They never know who you are. You're hidden. There are people who have gotten millions of dollars in the U.S. and are still working at the company where they blew the whistle. How's that? Easy. We can do that. That's not rockets. You know, it's been done. So that, to me, is the answer. We're putting together a consortium right now, um, uh, Future Growth and OMIG, John Duncan at OMIG, who's a, also a great advocate and practitioner of ESG integration, um, by the way. Um, 50,000 rand to pay for some legal research to get the ball rolling, get people thinking and talking about this. And I'm 57. I'll retire in nine years. Maybe we'll get this done by then. Okay. That would be my legacy to South Africa. If I can pull that off which right now is pretty much a dead duck because the insiders are too afraid. Although the Gupta leaks were insider leaks, right? They came out of insiders, let's be clear. Um, so the press is a powerful, a free press is a powerful mechanism for insiders to be heard. Um, all of us. And what do we live on? All of us. Ratings agents, the press, customers, external audit, the shareholders, the bondholders, we all live on information. We need better mechanisms of discovery. All that, you know, so, so here's the interesting thing. All that stuff I showed you, we got the to disclose all that list of all good stuff, and there's more than that, that was all bilateral agreements between Land Bank and Future Growth. It's not in their listed documentation, which means if they don't do it, my remedy is very I'm not going to lend you money anymore. I could say it publicly and undermine them, which isn't nice. It makes me the bad guy again. But it's bilateral. We need to get it into the JSE bond market listing requirements, right? That's the trick. All of this stuff has to be in listing requirements. 
So let's move there. We shared all of our findings with a couple of different ministries, Ministry of Public Works and National Treasury. We published it all, um, many hours spent uh, presenting the Olga and their work to those ministries. I mean, I mean after the change, not before, you know, okay, you get it. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't present to the bad guys, we presented to the new good guys. Um, so we've given what we can back to government, but most importantly now we need to get this stuff into the JSC standards and uh, our industry body and working with the CISA fixed interest standard committee, that's the bond investors in the country, we are now trying to get the JSC to change the listing standards. And I want to demonstrate that to you why. Um, so let's just talk about this, and this goes to uh, animal rights uh, points. Uh, maybe for breakfast this morning you had bacon and eggs. Maybe. You don't really want, you don't really want me to stand up and tell you how those, those uh, laying hens were treated, right? You don't want to know that they sort of lived cage this big and they just, they're a factory producing eggs and then they, they just die and they have a miserable existence. You'd, you'd rather look away, right? You don't want to know. Likewise, you don't want to know that your bacon comes, for those who eat bacon, comes from uh, factory cow, uh, pigs that are treated incredibly badly. This, these are called sow stalls, the sow crates, uh, where they, they, they give birth and they're put in these crates. They can't, they can't suckle the young. They can't even turn around. These are smart animals. Uh, a, a pig farmer was once quoted as saying, they're, they're so smart that if they had opposable thumbs, they would take over the world, but they lock them in these crates and they go crazy and they chew in the bars. You don't want to know that. I know you don't want to know that because I don't really want to know it. And this isn't a point, this isn't a story about animal rights. This is a story, right? This is a story about, I'm going to tell you stuff about the JSE bond market that you don't want to know. You're going to want to look away. You're going to walk out of this room and pretend, oh, Andrew never said that. It's not true, but it is true is the point I'm trying to make. So let's start with this. If you want to be a director of a JSE-listed equity, a company with shares listed on the JSE, these are some of the things you have to provide under the JSE rules. You know, what are the details of your qualification experience? Have you been provided from entry into Have you been found guilty in any disciplinary procedures? Re procedures removed from office for uh, misconduct or dishonesty? Have you been convicted of embezzlement? That's a good list. That's a pretty good list, isn't it? For the JSE equity listing requirements. If you want to be a director of a company that issues a on the JSE, think all of the SOEs in this country, because none of them have listed equity, they only have listed bonds, or any SPV or any securitization structure or any other company that's unlisted that issues a, a listed bond, you must have a name. Okay. It's funny, but it's not funny, right? I mean, it's not funny, right? But it is kind of funny. Uh, but that's the tip of the iceberg. Well, so all those reporting requirements I told you about, first of all, the bond market already has very, very I mean, almost, almost nothing. Is, as we stand today, you can list anything on the bond market for paying a low bond fee, and there's no reporting requirements, there's no quality imprimatur, there's almost nothing you can get as an investor. Um, and so all put in the JSC standards should be an easy shoe-in to get the JSC to change it. It is not. They are pushing back, they are pushing back very hard against these changes. Okay? So, so, um, so let's just, uh, this, this, I, I just think this is such a great book. If you haven't read the and you have any interest in, in capital markets, you really should. Um, but this, this is just a great quote. An investor who went from the stock market to the bond market was like a small furry creature raised on an island without any predators, removed to a pit full of Okay. And the basic theme is the stock market over a century or two has been regulated into compliance. It's been regulated into a place where moms and pops can invest alongside institutions in a relatively safe way and there's company law protections or minority protections and a whole bunch of stuff to protect including, by the way, the key issue that your shares are the same as management shares, are the same as institutional shares. There's alignment because you have the same stuff. 
The bond market is diametrically opposite to that. It is a place where front running is allowed. That's a place allowed in the bond market? Andrew proved that to me. Okay, let me prove it to you. Two recent examples. I'm going to make throwaway lines, so I'm going to give you evidence, right? Two recent examples. I don't know if any of you noticed, the South African government uh, sold about $5 billion of bonds in, the in October. Anybody remember that? Got away. I mean, they wanted to do three, and they sold five because it was well oversubscribed. Interestingly, two weeks later, they came out with a medium-term expenditure framework that showed the de deficit to GDP this year was going to six, and was going to, to GDP was going kaboom. Two weeks later, what do you think? You think they knew in advance? You think National Treasury, who had prepared the papers for the MTF, didn't know that they were about to announce that? Of course they knew. How could they not? That's front-running people. Interestingly, Sassol did the same thing. Sassol did a, uh, issued a listed bond in the South African bond market about, I think it was two weeks, before they made their most recent announcement about the Lake Charles disaster. Well, you know, it's going to be delayed again. It's going to cost dollars and da 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 And the share price went boom. Two weeks. Front-running? Not front-running. Anybody investigating it? It's a JSC. Of course they're not investigating it. There's no rules against it. There's no rules against it. bond market we're dealing with. Banks lie to us. They manipulate investors. They put themselves in superior positions to get better recovery. Uh, let me, I'll substantiate that. Anyway, so this is true. This is true stuff. Um, in the midst of the SOE crisis, when I had no more appetite, believe me, because I had enough going on, um, I have to tell the story really in summary, so I'll try. Nomvula Mokoyani, you all know her, she left the Department of Water Affairs in a shambolic state, hatched an evil plan. And the evil plan was to take uh, Umklatuzi water, the Richards Bay Water Authority, and merge it with Umgeni water, which services Greater Durban. Right? That was her plan. And the reason she wanted to do this was to get of chairperson of the merged entity, because due to Mayani, had been the chairman of Richards Bay, or Umkhatuzi, but had served out her term and couldn't serve anymore. So Nomvula, her friend, said, oh, it's fine, I'll just make up a new water board, you'll be the chairman. You think I'm making it up? It was in the newspaper. I mean, not with the tone of voice, <laughs> not with the attitude, but that's what she said. She's, I've already decided to merge the entities and Dudu is going to be the chairperson. There was no entity yet, of course. Um, and there was nothing to stop her. There was nobody who could stop her. So as part of the plot, um, she fired... On July 1st, 2017, she fired the entire board of Umgeni Water. The entire board. One day, the, as minister, she could do this. She says there's no more board of directors. Now, that's really interesting because in so doing, doing she breached the, the Companies Act. She breached the Public Finance Management Act. She actually breached her own guiding legislation, which is the Water Services Act. And by the way, she threw the king code in the shredder. There was, there's no king code. If you've got no board, there's no king code in operation. Now, the one thing under is they had said they'd adhere to the King Code. The Umgeni has listed bonds. They will adhere to the King Code. The rest of it, pff, doesn't matter. You could break the law and there's nothing we could do. Now, interestingly, I don't have a headline here that says there's no board of directors of Umgeni Water. Why? Tell anybody. They didn't have to under the JSC rules. Some of you are equity investors, you will know. If a company changes their director, they must put out a SENS announcement, right? Why? You're investors. You need to know who's governing the company you're invested in. Apparently not. Nobody has to know. So, fires the whole board, nobody knows. Not only, and I can prove nobody knows, because that was on July, uh, July 1st. Uh, this, you can't see the date, but it's July 15th. Fitch reaffirms the rating as AA plus with a stable outlook, doesn't even know there's no company that they're rating. And so it goes. Anyway, we decided to be smart this time rather than shoot my mouth off on Bloomberg TV. We called the lawyers. We said, what can we do? How can we stop this woman from, from stealing uh, this money? 
uh, you know, corrupting this waterboard. Um, and it was only after long engagement and lawyers' letters to uh, Nomvula and Nomgeni that we said something publicly. Uh, we went to the JSC, by the way, and we told them of this problem, and, uh, 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 and they said, oh, really? Wow. Hmm. We'll have a chat with them. And we said, no, don't have a chat with them. You need to suspend trading of these bonds. This company can go out and issue a billion rand of debt tomorrow. Nobody knows what's going on except us. You need to suspend trading of these bonds. Oh, no, we can't do that. We can't suspend trading of a bond. And I'm like, well, why not? They're in breach of your own rules, their own, their own undertakings, as well as the law. And why not? And here's the answer. And here's the thing that's most galling about the JSC and why I'm kind of with the JSC. That you want to change the regulations governing the the stock market or the bond market, you must go through the JSC. They control it. That's a big, big, big problem. As a self-regulatory organization in a competitive marketplace, and again, you think I'm paying attention to the Saudi Aramco listing? You would have followed the last couple of years. Anybody notice where they decided to list? Nobody? In Saudi Arabia. They didn't go, <laughs> they didn't go anywhere else because they couldn't find anywhere else in the world with weaker standards that they would be satisfied with. They couldn't bully any of the exchanges to so degrade listing standards so they could still run this family-owned business as a listed entity, so they had to list it at home, list it at home to get a price. Now, eventually, they'll sell it to global investors, but it's a, it's, it's a sign of how exchanges actually work. Okay, so long story short, the JSC did bugger all this. We, we and, and, and this is quite important because it goes to the broader story about the bond market and why this is important. In fact, I'm going I'm to jump to my next slide to tell you the rest of the story. Okay. Why is any of this important aside from being able to impose some sort of reasonable governance and reporting standards uh, and investor protections? And it goes to the, the first principles. Those of uh, you did, did your degrees uh, 30 years ago would remember the basic formulation of credit, that there are the three C's of credit. The capacity to repay from cash flows. Collateral, if you don't repay, that is your house, your car, your dog, your wife. And, well, maybe not your wife, probably your car. Um, and your character, your intent to repay. You know, are you going to repay the money? That's, of course, the G in ESG, is assessing the corporate character. Those are the three C's of credit. There's a fourth one, and that is, okay. If I make you a home loan, and it's a mortgage bond, if I don't go to the legal work to register that bond, what have I actually got? I've got a personal unsecured loan, right? If I don't do the legal work and it's not done properly, then there's nothing, I got nothing, because we take your house. So contract is vitally important. In fact, I would say, in my experience of doing credit now for, 30-ish years, um, half of credit work is legal work, practically done. In the bond market, in the JC bond market, it's a listed capital market, there's some minimum level of protections, but there are not. We're used to an equity world where the company law provides a framework of basic protections. In the bond market, there is no standard protection. I, I, I'm exaggerating. The basic protection is the bondholders must get paid. But outside of that, it's dog-eat-dog, -dog. and the banks, uh, and, and this happens all the time. The banks will rush in when a company gets in trouble. Um, give me a specific example. PPC Cement got into financial difficulties a couple of years ago. A lot of bank lenders issued bonds. The banks are in there like a shot. The banks get together, they call each other, they get in a room, they appoint attorneys jointly, and they get in there and they take security. Oh, thank you. I will grab hold of this building, and I'll take the furniture, and I think I'll take the AV equipment. Thank you very much. And they've got locked up. The company's not bankrupt yet. This company's still operating. The bondholders, the listed bondholders, what do we do? Well, under JSC rules, under the DMTNs on which we buy bonds, are weak contracts. They're really bad contracts. We can't even talk to each other, call each other. We can't call a meeting. We have no way or mechanism to call a meeting. 
So while the banks are busy getting organized, which they could do, we can't even get together. So let me go back to the Gainey example. There's a problem. We go to the loan agreements. We go to the JSC rules. Can we? Apparently not. But we go to the JSC. We explain to them. We say, look, help us find the other investors so we, we'll, we'll organize them. We'll call a meeting. Oh, no. JSC can't help us do that. Go to straight. Oh, no. We can't tell you who the bondholders are. Go to the arranger. That's their banker who the market. I think it was Investec. I could be corrected on that. Um, so let me not name a name. It was either Investec, Standard Bank, RMB, or Nedbank. <laughs> okay? It's not, if you're going to name names, let's name them all, right? Okay. To the arranger, we say, we want to contact the bondholders, because surely they know who the bondholders are, right? They sold the bonds. Oh, no, we can't help you. We work for Umgeni Water. The only person calling meetings is Umgeni Water. You think they're going to call a meeting? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, so no, we can't. We can, and we do. So Future Growth alone sends a list, a GoFish email to the whole asset management industry because we have their email addresses, right? Anybody go to Beganey Bonds, we've appointed ENS at our expense to do a legal review of this loan agreement. Rights and protections are. You are welcome to come to a meeting and, and hear, hear what this is about. But, and, and several do come. Now we're in the room, and now we know the only way we can stop the minister from doing what she's going to do is by legally blocking her, by actually saying, hey, one thing the Water Services Act says is, and this is not even our loan agreement, but the Water Services Act says if you're going to merge water boards, you must prove that they are financially sustainable as a merged entity. So what do we do? We demand 40 years, the next 40 years of capital expenditure data and pricing assumptions and all this stuff. We block her from being able to merge these entities for two months. But the point is, we're all in the room now. You're all bondholders of Gandhi, and you know there's a problem. You know what she's trying to do. Okay, guys, we need to appoint attorneys because it's the only way to protect our bondholders in this company chip in. Anybody? Got a budget for legal? Anybody? Nobody? That's what happens. That's exactly what happens. It happens with Mganey. It happens with PPC. It probably happened with Steinhoff. It, it happened with Abel. Do you know how scarring it was, Abel, for the Everybody woke up and realized there was nobody to herd the cats. There was no way to call a meeting. There was no way to talk to each other. There was no way to point attorneys. It was chaos. It was chaos. And it was only because the bank and the Reserve Bank had basically said they'd bail it out that it was okay. But let me tell you, it was the asset management business to know how bad these arrangements are. And that's why there's unanimity at CISA. Unanimity amongst, say, 15 large asset managers working together now to change these standards, because we've all lived through these defaults. Really important, that unanimity. Because, I mean, you have no idea. Asset managers don't like each other, right? If you, if you, if you invited 15 asset managers to come have a sushi dinner on the waterfront for free, they wouldn't even your competitors. You know what I mean? You can't even order coffee together. That's how bad it is. But unanimity at this committee about JSC standards. So when I shoot my mouth off publicly, I have good backing behind me. Okay, and I'm tying together a lot of stories. I'm going to bring it to closure now. Um, happens all the time. You just don't pay attention. You think it's anecdotal. You think it's once-off. Oh, well, Steinhoff, that was a once-off example, until it becomes 16 other companies do exactly the same stuff. Uh, you, you say to me, but Andrew, Andrew, what? Imperial? Bidvest? Really? How are they? Well, they're on that list because, they, you may recall, they both split up into, into separate entities, didn't they? There was Big Imperial with a big pile of debt. And then one day they just decided, let's make Big Imperial two little Imperials with a big pile of debt. Well, you should have downgraded from a double A, and you could do nothing about it, and nobody asked you as a bondholder. There were no protections. It's called a credit event. In international loan agreements, there are protections against credit events. If something is going to be downgraded, you have to vote in favor of it, or you have to be paid for it. Not in the JSC standards. We, and, and the game is rigged the loan agreements. You're saying to me, but Andrew, then why do you buy the bonds? That's, that's exactly the right question. But the, why do you buy the bonds? Well, Futuro doesn't, actually. We get outbid. 
We price risk, right? We price for legal risk. We get outbid 98% of the time. The rest of you buy the bonds because you don't know that there's a legal risk you, right? So what we're doing is actually fighting for all investors. Um, the, the, way, the way the process works, I'm going to give it to you. I mean, you're smart people, so you'll understand it. DM Chen's a loan agreement. Domestic meaning of no room is a loan agreement. It's about this thick. So it comes out about a week before they do the auction. The arranger will come. One of the banks with their blue suits uh, will, and ties will come. I'm your friend. I'm going to sell you this wonderful debt instrument. They give you the DM10. They say, give me any of your comments. So if you're all bond investors, let's say, hypothetically, you're all institutional, about five of you will actually give comments. The rest of you will just assume it's been taken care of. It has not been taken care of. But five of you will actually read the darn thing and make some comments along the lines of what I'm discussing. Each of us will give our comments back to the arranger. Comments, read them, and put them in the nearest trash bin. Nobody else sees them. Nobody sees them. The rest of you, the rest of you dummies who don't even know there's legal agreements, don't even know that's happening, and you'll never see those comments, and we don't see them either. So they, then, they go, go to the, then they go and they issue the bonds to the 95% of you that are dumb, and the 5% are smart, like, well, they didn't listen to us. And unfortunately, even our mandates say you must buy listed, right? It's in, it's in, it's in the unit trust regulations, it's in client mandates, listed bonds, listed. But it's, it's like being, being forced to buy week old, two-week-old milk. I mean, it's stupid. Okay, so we need to fix it. <laughs> okay, that's the problem with this market. And the key, that key, that bit at the end that I told you about, um, the, the real nub of it is this. After the bond is issued, this is important, before the bond is issued, we cannot talk to other investors. That, that is collusion, right? If we start comparing notes to, to other assets, with assets, it'll be collusion. Afterwards, we can talk. So we'll go to the ASISA committee, and we'll say, hey, did you see that, uh, that bond last week? That discovery issue bond last week, for example. Did you see that discovery bond? We asked for this, 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 this. And we were told nobody else asked for it. The merchant bank said nobody else asked and the other guys will say, and it is mostly guys, I'm sorry, ladies. The other guys will say, you know, we asked for those things as well. They also told us nobody asked for it. Lying? Is that okay in a listed capital market? Lying to investors? Anybody? Hmm? Okay. It's a bad thing to do in a listed public capital market. Okay, I'm not making this stuff up. This happens every week. Okay. All of this stuff I'm describing is normal lending practices. Ability to call me attorneys, by the way, you, when you appoint attorneys, the borrower has to pay. Same as you. If, you're, if you default on your home loan, you default on your home loan, what's going to happen? They're going to appoint an attorney. Who's going to pay for the attorney? <laughs> you're going to pay for the attorney. Of course you are. They're going to take the house. Same, that's what we should do. That's how every other bank loan in the history of the world is done, but not in the listed bond market. Um, all this stuff, weak reporting, weak, no covenants, warranties, security, step and rights, no intercreditor agreements. Who, how do we call a meeting? Who can call a meeting? Who chairs the meeting? What's the to have that meeting. What are the voting thresholds to change the terms of the bond? Do they say to extend the term or change the rate? It's, it's unclear. It's not there. It's, there's nothing. I've already mentioned this front-running problem. Okay. Asking for, through ASISA, um, transparency of the negotiation setting bond. All we want is the ability to do our jobs. We're not asking them to protect us. Make investment decisions wrongly? Tough ski. A rigged system, an unlevel playing field is not acceptable. The JSC thinks we want the ability to call meetings with quorum requirements and voting rights. We want the ability to appoint attorneys, and we want much more reporting, uh, on, particularly on governance matters. So that's kind of the headlines. The banks, of course, are the bad guys. I'm not going to waste time on them, um, except this, this last quote. This is short. This, this is great. So, so the, the, the preamble is the banks, the bankers in South Africa are the, after government itself, the banks are the largest borrowers of money in the public capital market, in the bond market. 
Forget about the SOEs. The banks are second in line us. And the banks run the bond market. It's like a rigged game again. So, so whenever something is up with the bond market, the JSC calls the banks to get their opinion. Well, what do you think the banks say? No, we don't want better standards. <laughs> okay, so, so, so this, is a, this is a great quote from uh, Steve, Steve Eisman, who was one of the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, uh, sort of key characters in the big short. You know, I can understand why Goldman Sachs would want to be included in the conversation about what to do about Wall Street. What I can't understand is why anyone which is exactly how, how the investors now feel about the banks and the bond market. Why do we keep listening to these, these people who are stealing our money? Okay, so we've seen this systematic attempt to capture the state. The bond market is in fact captured by the banks and the JSE, and, and they, 18 months into a, a, a process of reviewing the debt listing standards, we are getting nowhere. The JSE just keeps backtracking on everything. The banks keep lying in meetings. We go into a meeting where they agree to something, a day later you get a renege email it's actually appalling stuff. I'm going to write a book. I'll start shouting about it on the front page of the paper. Uh, not that anybody will pay any attention because you all love your banks. Um, it's time for change. We mustn't waste the crisis this country has had for the last decade. Public and private sector. Our argument is this web of governance must be strengthened. Transparency uh, allows us all to do our jobs better. Um, and, and investors have to stop being divided and conquered because that's exactly how the system works. Uh, it divides us and conquers us. Um, I'm going to stop there, actually. We've gone for an hour. Okay. Questions, comments, insults, observations, throw things? It's okay. How do you They haven't said that yet. Uh, I've been telling this story. These slides are being now seen by trustees. They're also bound. They've got consultants and their mandates and the regulations. Blah, blah, blah. They're interested. So what I'm hoping, as part of the negotiation with the JSC, there's a couple ways to play that. I, we can go with a scorched earth policy where we convince everybody not to invest in listed bonds, which unfortunately asset managers really are not going to want to do, and it's really not good for the economy. We don't want to undermine the bond market. I need them to be attuned that when if the JSC sends something to the Financial Sector Conduct Authority for sign-off, that the actually write letters uh, of supporting the ASISA position. That's my goal. Um, trying to alert them and have them ready for when we call for help. But in the meantime, we're fighting the fight for them. But yeah, no, many of them are tuned into this and getting scared. The wisest ones, to be honest with you, it's actually quite funny. When you, sit on a, when you report back to a group of trustees of a big corporate, I won't, I won't name a name here, but any one of the names I've mentioned and more also have pension funds, and those pension funds are, by and large, one of my clients. So, so, so you report and the, usually the CFO is sitting there in the corner saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I just issued bonds last week. You know, Cantor is telling the truth. They won't say it out loud, of course. <laughs> but but I, can see their, I can see their wheel spinning. They know exactly what's going on. They know how the process works when they issue the market. Often, often uh, it's a trick question trustees ask um, when, they, when they do a due diligence on you. They'll say, so we have a listed bond. Did you buy our bond? And, you know, it's kind of a trick. The smart ones know the answer is no because they know how crappy the bonds are. Uh, it's that kind of conversation. Andrew, um, just a question on the regs. My understanding is that just issuers can issue under the debt. Why not go about that? You know, I'm sorry, say it again. It listed, say it again? So listed issuers or listed guarantors under the regs, under Cisco 109, 28, the debt issuer itself doesn't have to be listed. 
that when you say listed issuers, you mean equity listed issuers? Correct. Yes, that's that's right. You, so, you a, listed, a company with listed equity does not have to issue listed bonds. That's right. So Separate decision. Sorry. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Bilateral loans or syndicated loans are 100% better. Uh, if we syndicate into, if we if we do a straight loan with a corporate, now remember there's a, there's a point of size where it doesn't make sense to go to a listing. It's just a, you have to get a rating, and it's just easier to borrow 500 million rand in a bilateral agreement with somebody. So those loans, sure, we get reporting, we get covenants, we get step-in rights, um, early warning triggers, uh, pre-events of default. If they're if they're debt to if the debt to EBIT or their interest coverage ratio drops below 1.2, it's, it's already an event of default. It allows you to stop them from driving the bus off the cliff. Um, you get security, or at least a decent negative pledge. A negative pledge is, is not necessary that you, um, it's not necessary that you to me as a mortgage bond, but you promise you won't cede it to anybody else. So if you go bust, at least I know the chair will be in your office. Nobody else can get it. So that's called a negative pledge as opposed to a positive pledge. So yeah, we do all of that stuff in the, in the, in the, in the bilateral market or the loan market. By the way, loan market associates agreements have all of this stuff. It's a global thing. It's called the Loan Market Association. We all use these standard loan agreements. It could just as easy be put in the JSC standards, um, and that's what we're aiming for. Um, if we send, and this is the most galling thing, the banks who are hard fighting us, if we syndicate into any loan with them, any large-scale loan, um, um, uh, we just, re just recently refinanced the Dark Fiber Africa. They've got billions and billions of debt um, uh, for Dark Fiber Africa. We're in a syndication. It's all bank Intercreditor agreements, uh, you know, covenants, warranties, securities, uh, sessions and pledges, uh, meetings, legal, it's all there. So it's standard stuff. It's just in the bond market, they don't want it. Does that answer your question? Yes, I prefer the unlisted market. But so I'm concerned, A couple choices. Set up an alternative exchange. I know that's singing your song. <laughs> okay, he's setting up an alternative exchange. He wants a copy of my slides. Okay, so that's option A because then, but then we'd have to do a, a buyer strike. We'd have to go to the bank and say, okay, sorry, you can issue under the JSC rules. We're not buying anymore. Hard to do. Really, really, I need to do what's possible. You know. Listed loans are, are, are a better answer for investors, not necessarily good for the economy. A, a public capital market, a free-flowing public capital market where borrowers of any size or shape or form can borrow money in an efficient way or raise capital is a really good thing for the economy. I don't want to kill the, that, that goose. Um, the, 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 we, we had the makings of a, of a lower-grade debt market, triple B instruments. There was, it was starting to happen a couple of years ago, and they all, they all defaulted. The, the loan agreements were so bad, the companies were so Defaulted. First Strut was a triple B entity, for example. Uh, Real People was a triple B entity. They got into financial difficulties. I, I'm sure there are others. I can't think of them right now. But there are no longer. Nobody will buy a triple B rated bond in the listed capital market because we know that they, the smart people know it's rubbish. So, other questions? It's just it's just to disabuse everybody of the idea, or I should say, disenthrall yourselves of the idea that listed means better or safer or more liquid. Maybe in equities it does. Private equities are very Public equity is a very simple thing. Public debt is not a simple thing at all. It is a completely different animal. It needs to be treated as a different animal, as in the quote from um, Michael Lewis. Uh, can I just comment on the, uh, the JSC uh, the, the 
Oh, they're all bad. Uh, so so uh, for, my, uh, for my sins, I collect uh, old stock, mostly bond certificates from the uh, 18th and 19th and early 20th century. When you used to get your actual certificate, some of again, you will remember that, where you bought something, you got an actual pretty piece of paper. Don't get that anymore. Now it's all on a computer. So when companies go bust, it literally disappears. And they're all defaulted loans, right? They, there's, they, I've got the, all these beautiful instruments with beautiful artwork and scroll work that were, were in their day, uh, uh, beautiful listed instruments. But in fact, why were they beautiful? They were beautiful selling it to somebody else. Why would you spend money on artwork unless you're literally selling a product? So that's what they are, they're products. So, so the point is this has been going on a long time and what the banks did globally, quite, you know, the big banks in the US actually, created the Image. They made the bond markets what they wanted them to be so they could sell crappy bonds to dumb institutions. You can quote me on that one. They sell bad bonds to stupid institutional investors. And okay, you want me to demonstrate that? for you. Globally, over time, when banks make loans, if those loans go bust, their recovery rate is about 75 cents on the dollar. 70, 75 cents on the dollar. That is say that's the money you get back. Lend out a dollar, the companies on average get into trouble like five cents. Institutional investors buying bonds on listed bond exchanges get back 30 to 35 cents on the dollar when they default. So what's the difference? Gee, let's summarize it. Banks know how to make loans, institutional investors don't. Banks institutional investors don't. That, it's, it's simple, it's simple, it's in the statistics. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not making this stuff up. Um, so this is a global problem. The difference, this is an important difference. I've said here, don't waste a crisis, right? Never waste time for change. In Europe, when they've tried to do this, and they have tried to do this in Europe, what we're doing in South Africa, go ahead, trying to get European institutional investors all together in one room at one time. How many, how many languages, how many jurisdictions? Where are you gonna meet? Paris? You're gonna do that. Can't get them together. We can get the entire asset management business together in one room at one time, either in person or by video conference in Johannesburg. We can do it. The South Africa, I keep saying this to the JSC, I say, guys, you realize you were on the, of governance. You can see what's happened. You can see what's happened on your watch. You could be the world leaders in improving quality standards of the bond market. People will write case studies about you. You will be the hero. I will, I've even offered, I will personally go on TV and say you're the heroes. I've given them that. You can call them thieves. So I'm trying to be the good cop, bad cop. Um, no, no, make no mistake. The only reason they started the process of reviewing the debt listing standards is because I publicly went out and said that the JSC is, is, is protecting Entities. I publicly said it a few times. That got their board's attention. That's the only reason they started the process. Otherwise, they would have sat under their rock for another decade, as they have for the last decade, despite making promises. So they know who, they know what I'm about, and and they are suitably afraid of brand being damaged. Go for it. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, when you talk about ESG integration and all of this is about the G way, I think it's a lot more clear cut what's right and what's wrong. How do you Okay, so, so the, trick, the trick of the E and the S, the reason why people like checkboxes for governance is because it looks like it could be standard, right? You could pretend in a pretend world that all governance is standard. And I've already given an example where it's not. For the procurement committee, for lending in, you look at the credit committee, and right away it's not standard anymore. But by and large, people think governance can be standardized in a tick box approach. It's very hard to do that with, with social factors, right? The social factors of a micro lender are entirely different from the social factors of a food producer social factors of an automobile manufacturer. I mean, it's, it's not standardized. You have to take each counterparty for their own social risks and their own environmental risks. 
So it's, it's, it's harder to do. It's hard, the industry globally is kind of, what is the standard reporting measure? Okay, carbon emissions may be a good one. Maybe we could find a standard carbon emission measure uh, for all companies in all time. Okay, um, gender lens investing, sure. You could look at the, the number of females in the, in the C-suite or the females in the board. You could do that across all companies. But other than that, social, social and environmental, it's a mile wide. It's really difficult. But it's coming, I hope. bunch of layers of questions there. <laughs> so um, um, one of the interesting things is this presentation or some version of it, um, the team, Olga and the credit team, have done this discussion about what we learned about governance to the, uh, the corporate secretaries to their conference about three times. They're really, really interested in this topic. What they do with it, I don't know, because the problem they'll have when they denote something is probably the same as you might have as professionals when you do know something. Is it, it, because you know that as soon as you say something, once it comes back to the company, the first question the CEO is going to ask is, who said it? They're going to do a witch hunt. And you know it. All of us know it. So that's the, the core issue. And so until you use a plausible way for you to, hence leaking the Gupta leaks, hence leaking your stuff to the press, you know, dropping, dropping tidbits to the press so they report it and solve your problem for you, um, until we get better protections, it's not going to get fixed. Uh, as far as our personal, why we did it, um, sorry. As far as our personal experience, I mean, people think we're either prescient or a genius or whatever. We're actually quite stupid. Um, and, and people say, oh, you were very brave. I wasn't brave at all. Brave is when you know guys landing at D-Day, you know, in 1944, and they're in the boats coming on shore, and they know that when that steel door drops, there's machine guns on their side, and they're going to get shot at. That's bravery. And they go anyway. I didn't know it was going to happen, <laughs> frankly. I really, I didn't. We'd settled a lot of ways to, about a lot of things over a lot of years. I didn't know. Uh, we, were, we were kind of backed into a corner because we knew stuff that we knew was going to come out and we decided to say it first. But, but anyway, that, that, was, that was not whistleblowing. That was shooting wide. Um, did you have a question? Okay. Oh, sorry, one more. Yeah, so I just wanted to follow up on the ESG question. Okay? You know, some of us are institutional investors, trustees, or advisors. Now, most of the big have fancy stewardship reports that they can give us. Um, what, what can we do as the, the institutional This is a topic for another whole discussion, but let me take a shot at it. And speaking, speaking frankly, speaking frankly, you're the boss. You ask questions, 
I mean, that's the one thing that says very clearly, or Mervyn King says very clearly, a good director asks a lot of questions. So ask questions. If your much beloved asset manager tells you he's integrated ESG and he's got uh, uh, codes and practices and da-da-da, but he's holding all of those bad names that have blown up and he's overweight, then you do kind of use your, your analytical judgment to determine whether he's telling you the truth. Because if I've just shown you a bunch of headlines that tell you these guys are still investing in them, then they ain't integrating ESG. It's, it's only that simple. Now, anybody can make, we're in, the, we're in the mistake making business, right? I mean, by nature. But if you make the same mistakes repeatedly in the same ways, then they're telling you who they are, and that's your judgment. Clients get a bit confused about it. They think, oh, I, I, it's difficult to fire asset managers. Oh, it's transition costs, and I've got to go and tender, and my consultant, and that, oh, it's just a hassle. I don't want to fire the asset manager in place. You don't have to. Flows. If I've got a billion rand of your money, and you take 100, it gets as much attention as if you took the billion. You don't have to fire. You don't have to do big transitions. Just say, you know, we're doing rebalancing. We're taking 100. And by the way, it might be related to the way you've not been integrating ESG in a manner that we think is consistent with what you tell us in the slides. You've got enormous power. You really do. Um, whether you're going to be able to assess their, their governance sustainability codes or their, um, what was the word you used? Um, uh, the stewardship codes. Yeah, you can look at the voting records. That's okay. But you know, are you going to be able to really assess it? Not really. No more than you can really assess their analytical process. Faith and trust and track record. Well, if the track record is they have all the bad names and they keep doing the same thing over again, that's a track record. So. I would also say, lastly, and I've said it already, I think trustees need to move away from being benchmark slavish as I think asset managers need to move away. You need to tolerate, you pay asset managers to exercise judgment and to take views relative to the benchmark, but then that means you should allow them to take views. So if they have a rational view as to why they're Tiger Brands, for example, then say, you know, I get it. I may not agree with you, but I've heard your story, and okay, it's your view. Obviously, over time, over a scale of five and ten years, they've got to prove they're right. Or as I said, as I said to the team about Steinhoff, had we been an equity investor, we would have been literally we would have been wrong for a decade, and we would have been right for one week. I mean, that's a crappy position for an equity investor. So the, you've got the power. I would say use it in tweaks. So we have, um, uh, yeah, got it. And as a, as a human, I what can I tell you? I mean, I think we all should be doing that. The question is about the global plastic problem. Um, we funded a business to start with. This is real venture capital. Uh, it was such venture capital that we lost the money. Uh, we funded a company that was going to take waste plastic, this stuff, and run it through a flash pyrolysis process and turn it into liquid fuel. And they had a pilot plant that was funded by Sassel, and they had the thing running. It was about, uh, if you took this table and multiplied it by about 10 times in volume, it was about that size uh, plant. And when they tried to scale up, because that's the nature of scaling and engineering. So basically, it, it's become a, a problem when we've basically lost the money. Uh, okay, I won't say any more. So that's one attempt. There's another company we're looking at right now that's making a plant-based plastic. Um, plant, uh, I want to say a plant-based protein, but it's not. 
it's a plant, uh, that's burgers, it's a plant-based material that they can extrude into plastic like this that is both biodegradable and compostable. That's the trick. Some of this stuff is, is bio, is a Valpre with those ads, but the kids swimming and my parents are gonna look after my future. Those bottles, will, they are biodegradable, but over like 100 years, it's like, it's a lie. They're lying to you, right? But biodegradable and compostable means they disappear in six months. An investment right now, that's also venture capital. Of, but this is coming and it's coming fast. The technology is there and it's, it's, it's incredibly scalable and it's actually already a commodity. The stuff that they, goes into it is already a commodity. We could be setting up plants all around. So that coming, it's just a matter of how you get there and who gets there first. Regulations coming, Europe in particular, um, the, the regulation is, is clamping down on, on plastics and presumably that'll reach us. We're not completely environmental dolts. <laughs>